1: Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. But as you know, if you've been listening this summer for the past few months, we've been putting some different chess pieces on the board. In fact, it's been a while since we released a new episode where we held a live formal debate, which we do now about 15 times a year. This summer, we've been doing a kind of bi-weekly show, meaning you get an episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. every other week. I've just wrapped up four episodes of a series we're calling Discourse Disruptors, where I've been sitting down with people who have exceptional minds in the arena of shaping public discourse today. You can scroll through your feed to hear those. Today, I am back in the studio with two fantastic guests for another special episode of our podcast. And this time, the focus is the latest issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, whose theme is the rise of autocracy around the world and by autocracy, what we're basically talking about is we're using it essentially as another word for dictatorship, the idea of a single individual or a very, very small group of individuals who hold all of the power, who are aspiring to or who are moving toward holding all of the power in a given society or system. Gideon Rose, the editor of Foreign Affairs, says it this way, the leading figures on the world stage today are practicing a brutal smash mouth politics, a personalized authoritarianism. And this issue of foreign affairs features a number of fascinating pieces and profiles of some of the autocrats out there and also a think piece on what do these guys need to do to stay in power? Do they have the tools that they have to stay in power or not? And. I'm going to be talking with two of the authors of these fantastic pieces, uh, Susan Glasser and Yasha Monk, who are two of the country's most celebrated writers and thinkers on issues that relate to foreign policy and democracy. Again, their articles are in Foreign Affairs magazine. Yasha and Susan, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Uh, Thank Susan, you
1: from- it's a pleasure to have you here. Yasha, you've debated with us a um, number of times, so uh-huh. it's great to have you just in a conversation. And Susan- Did he win? Uh, Josh, I think I did. I have, did a, I have a clean record. Yeah, one, two for two. <laughs> and and that's you know you shouldn't have said that because
2: <laughs> <laughs> retire now. <laughs> y- yeah, that's yeah.
1: right. Yeah, better better quit while I'm ahead. Susan, we'd love to have you on a stage uh, when when the time comes. So keep keep open when the phone call comes. You're a staff writer at the New Yorker. Susan, you were a founding editor of Politico magazine. Um, You're the author, co-author of Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Your article in Foreign Affairs magazine is titled Putin the Great, Russia's Imperial Imposter. And just a sentence or two, what is that about?
2: Well, in a nutshell, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has just hit uh, the record for modern leader Uh, who served longest in power in Russia, uh, only second to Joseph Stalin at this point, exceeding Leonid Brezhnev. And yet, interestingly enough, it's not Brezhnev uh, or Stalin that he compares himself to, but since the beginning of his incredible rise as an obscure former KGB lieutenant colonel, it's actually Peter the Great uh, that Vladimir Putin has always uh, cloaked himself in, admired, aspired to, uh, in a way that, of course, doesn't necessarily make him a latter-day czar, but uh, I think is a telling uh, uh, clue to unlock this very sort of enigmatic and dynamic leader who who has changed the course of of modern Russia.
1: And and he certainly in the world today is one of the, I would say, two or three leading autocrats or aspiring autocrats that we're aware of and focus on. So I think we'll be spending a lot of time talking about Where the heck did Vladimir Putin come from? And where is he going? But Yasha, you are an associate professor at Johns Hopkins. You're a contributing editor at The Atlantic. You're host of The Good Fight podcast. You, as I said, have debated with a bunch of times. Your article in Foreign Affairs is called The Dictator's Last Stand, Why the New Autocrats Are Weaker Than They Look. Uh, again, sentence or two, what's your thesis?
3: Yeah, you accused me before we started recording of taking a victory lap in this piece. I think you meant it a little witheringly, but... Uh, no, no, you no, no it was only friendly. <laughs> know, of course. Um, but a few years ago, I started to argue that these new populists we see rising up in countries around the world are really a danger to democracy. Uh, that seemed like a very controversial, perhaps an unlikely argument at the time. Now, as you see people like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, Viktor Orbán in Hungary, um, Hugo Chavez and his successor Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela consolidating their power in various countries, I think we've come to understand uh, that they really are very dangerous to democratic systems. What I'm doing in this piece is to challenge uh, some of the new orthodoxy that I see, which is to think, hey, you know what, perhaps democracy is doomed, perhaps these people will be able to sustain their rule and their legitimacy for a very long time. And I argue that we are open to uh, a vicious cycle of populist legitimacy, that because the rule is based on claiming that they're going to uh, displace undemocratic elites, that we are going to make the countries more democratic, mm-hmm. but actually they end up becoming dictators, there's a moment when people start to realize that, and that spells real trouble for the regime in countries like Turkey already, mm-hmm. hopefully soon in countries like Hungary, uh, and perhaps even in Russia.
1: I'd like to give our our listeners also just a chance to understand who you are, you expert people, that you're actually people (laughs) and human beings. So Susan, before we even get into the conversation, where are you from and how did you get into the... Putin expert biz.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, completely unintentionally uh, in many ways, although I was very, like, I was always interested in Russia. I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, I guess you could say I was the product of the sort of end of the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. I uh, remember very vividly, it was my senior year in college in November of 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. Uh, I happened to have been taking a nap for some reason that afternoon and uh, I went to sleep in my dorm room and came downstairs a couple of hours later and the security guard, a TV had materialized on his desk. And he, you know, I'd never seen this before. And he's saying, oh my God, oh my God. What happened, the Berlin Wall fell. It was like actually going to sleep in one world and waking up in yeah. another. Uh, but, but I didn't have any particular Russia expertise. I took a, a, a year of the language my senior year in high school then forgot about it. But I I was a journalist here in Washington, primarily a political journalist. I was the editor of Roll Call newspaper. Then uh, I went to work at the Washington Post and uh, had the unlikely distinction of uh, my first assignment being overseeing the coverage of the impeachment uh, and trial of Bill Clinton in the Monica Lewinsky matter. Mm. So pretty far removed from foreign policy. So of course, they then sent me to Siberia. (laughs)
0: Uh,
2: (laughs) No, my husband and I, Peter Baker, were very lucky. Uh, This was the beginning of our married life, which we spent in Russia. uh, as correspondents for the Washington Post. And it happened to coincide with Vladimir Putin's uh, first few years in office. Okay.
1: How about you, Yasha? What's your story?
3: Um, so I, my parents are originally from uh, Poland, uh, so I have a Central European connection. I was born and raised in Germany. Um, uh, went to college in England, and uh, mostly because I love New York and wanted to live in New York, which I've always sort of failed to do. Um, I came to the United States, did my PhD here, um, and
1: have been living in the country for a good dozen years now. Your and your approach is academic, as I'm not well. You're, you're 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 somewhat doing journalism now. I mean, you're hosting podcasts, which bleed into that area. I would say I, I I've been known to commit for crime of journalism. <laughs> I uh, yeah. So I,
3: I I mean I my my uh, initial approach was academic. Yeah. Um. I'm a professor, I have a PhD in political science, but especially as I saw populism rising around the world and a lot of people not taking it seriously, I felt a real urgency to try and um, explain uh, that
1: phenomenon to right. people, and started writing a lot, and um, yeah, now I write very regularly in the Atlantic. So, what you would, what you found yourself pushing back against, I would say, when you started talking about the rise of populism being a true threat to democracy, is the notion that the era that Susan, you were just describing, the fall of the Berlin Wall in the '90s, there was such a sense that we all lived through, um, beginning with 1989 through at least the early 2000s, that democracy had won, and Mm. that democracy had won inexorably. I mean, am am I overstating that? Was that not the sense that every year more and more previously authoritarian or fledgling states were choosing democracy because it had been proven to have vanquished, number one, communism and all other systems? Am I overstating how things felt? back in the
2: 90s? Not at all. I mean, I think that is the, the indispensable context for understanding, in some ways, how we might have misunderstood phenomena like the rise of Vladimir Putin and the uh, backlash to democracy that we've been experiencing over the last decade. To me, partially, it's a response to the fact that we simply could not conceive of a world in which democracy was not the winner. Uh, it was mm. seen as such a total victory. In my view, that actually is a, a major reason why why we failed to understand Vladimir Putin fully uh, in 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 Washington and other Western capitals because he was seen as an outlier it was unthinkable that he would represent what he we now see him as which is essentially as the leading Vanguard of what became a whole new mm. club of uh, authoritarian leaders you know at the time uh, his program I argue in this piece was fairly clear, right? You know, he was a statist. He was someone who who saw his mission very clearly as to restore uh, centralized authority in the Kremlin and to restore Russia's uh, position on the world Mm -hmm. stage, right? So that really wasn't uh, a subject of much debate. The context around it was the part that we didn't understand.
1: I was actually based in Moscow through 91 through 93. So I went through from Gorbachev through Yeltsin. Yeah. Didn't get to Putin, but there was a sense at that time, Moscow was just this ferment of democratic excitement. And and it was also perceived by Washington as being a little bit more of a ferment than it actually was. But the idea that Vladimir Putin was out there kind of cooking up through the system somehow, just it wasn't on the radar at all. Um, when he finally emerged, I was thinking back, did I have, ever hear of this guy in the 90s? And he was, sense that he just kind of came out of nowhere. And you talk about that out of nowhere, Mr. Nobody perception of him. And to some degree, you're critical of people who look at him as having been a bit of a cipher. So take that on.
2: Well, look, first of all, there were these worries right in the 1990s, especially in that period right after you left Russia, uh, when Yeltsin was up for re-election, in fact. There was a great fear of both a communist return to power, uh, but also...
1: Through the ballot box.
2: Through the ballot box, Mm -hmm. but also uh, a sense and a worry that there was the possibility that always existed for a sort of hard-right nationalist uh, Zhirinovsky figure. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Zhirinovsky, one of the post- Soviet politicians who had a particularly virulent form of, you know, anti-everybody uh, yeah. Russian uh, nationalism. And so there was this, this fear around that element in Russian society emerging to take power possibly in an undemocratic way. I think what was discounted was the notion that essentially what we might call the deep state itself Uh, would rise up again uh, in some way and retake power. And arguably that is what Vladimir Putin represents, Mm -hmm. faceless in the sense that he is a, a creature of uh, the KGB, which was seen uh, in a very different context in many ways inside the Soviet Union than it was in uh, the West, in the United States, seen as, first of all, a kind of elite training ground for some of the smarter people in the society, also a place where uh, they actually understood what was happening in the world and perhaps understood in an alarming way the chaos and decay of the Soviet Union itself. Uh, Yuri Andropov, who was the short lived leader of the Soviet Union, was the head of the KGB. I think a figure that Vladimir Putin and others in the KGB thought might have made Russia turn out differently and might have kept the Soviet Union intact, unlike Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. So they wanted a do-over, right? These people inside the the Soviet-slash-Russian deep state. And Vladimir Putin, I think, has
0: represented their agenda.
1: We'll be back right after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Vladimir Putin had to win an election for this to happen mm. ultimately. I mean, he was brought up through appointments, but ultimately he had to win elections. And you make the argument in the case that these autocrats who win elections actually are promising something the public actually wants. What is that?
3: Yeah, I think the sort of my piece is specifically about populist autocrats and Putin counts in certain ways and not in other ways. So it's a little bit complicated. But the basic idea is, you know, how do you take especially a functioning democracy, which Russia wasn't entirely, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and convince people to give up some of the basic freedoms, the two basic things that our political system promises people, which is collective self-determination, that we together get to make the decision rather than the head of a KGB, um, and that uh, each of us is free, that we can criticize the government, that we can go about our business irrespective of the kinds of political connections we have. Uh, So how do you convince people to give up these very big goods? And the answer in most democracies is that you don't do it by saying, I'm going to come in, I'm going to be a dictator. People don't want that. But what you can do is to say, you know, the problem of our society is that there's all of these unaccountable elites and all of these dangerous outsiders and perhaps a world conspiracy of these or those people who really are governing. And I am speaking for the people. I am the true voice of what Russia, what Hungary, what Turkey, wherever you are, really wants. And so what you need to do is to put me in power. I'm going to, you know, yes, be a strongman. Yes, concentrate a little bit of power in my hands. But it's because I actually am the conduit for the people's voice and the people's preference. That, I think, is the way in which a lot of these dictators have managed to take so much power. But mm-hmm. inherent in that is a false promise. Because they are telling you, we're going to make the country more democratic. We're going to make it more free. And what actually happens over time is that they start to take freedoms away from you, but they start to oppress you. Now, at the beginning, and I think you can see that in Russia quite well, you can see that in other countries too, the only people who really notice the extent of the oppression are elites. The media and the academics. The media, journalists, academics, because these are not totalitarian regimes, um, and most people can go about their lives exactly as they were before, and they see the newspaper they used to read warn about autocracy and they say ah you know what i don't see autocracy in my everyday life Mm -hmm. i i'm not being hampered in what i can do i think all of this is a little abstract right and so for a long time you were talking about elections people can have a cake and eat it too they rig elections in various ways by controlling the media by disqualifying certain opposition candidates Mm -hmm. and so on but it still looks like they're actually winning these free elections and that gives them a lot of legitimacy Mm -hmm. But at some point, and this is the crux of my argument, you end up getting an external shock, perhaps a world economic crisis, an internal crisis, perhaps you've deeply mismanaged your economy, you have a currency crisis, and suddenly your popularity goes down. So now you have a decision between do you completely cancel or outright falsify elections, or do you give in? And most of the time, populist autocrats will start to ratchet up repression and at that point they start to lose legitimacy so they need more repression that's the vicious cycle that i think is at the heart of us
1: and that's the heart of your thesis and i want to come back to the loss of legitimacy idea and threat to these guys but uh, i want to return to susan just to test your description of how these people come to power and begin to assert power through the case of putin yasha laid out this again pointing out that putin is not a perfect example of the autocrats that you're talking about nevertheless you laid out this scenario in which the person comes to power with a promise I'm going to speak for you. I'm going to clean up the system. I'm going to get rid of the the elites. Um, I'm going to get rid of the outsiders. We're going to be pure. We're going to be good. Think life is going to be great. And he said the first people sensitive to the fact that maybe there's an authoritarian streak here would be the journalists and the academics, et cetera. And he begins to go at them. So what did Putin do in terms of beginning to shut down those voices that might have challenged him early on?
2: Yeah, I think it's a a great question because understanding in in some ways the moves that Putin made in the first few years has proven to be a template for uh, what you've seen in many other countries, uh, including at times in the rhetoric, if not the actions Mm -hmm. of our own president, uh, where you have a a systematic targeting of what I would say are the institutions and potential rival sources of power wherever they lie in a society. Uh, Where I would disagree is I think Putin is... Not a populist, and not in no way, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I do think that he has clearly, and in particular, with regard to managing elections and managing the democratic process. To create the appearance of it, rather than just simply eliminating it outright, mm-hmm. uh, that that is something that has been employed uh, to great effect uh, by many of these other leaders. Mm-hmm. But he's much more comparable, in many ways, I would say, to China's Xi Jinping in the sense that he is essentially a great power nationalist mm-hmm. and fundamentally a statist and a creature of. So uh, his rhetoric uh, sp- is
1: not truly populist, you assume? never.
2: Uh, okay. and, and and Vladimir Putin would never promise the people more democracy. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, in fact, he you know is coming again from a country with a very specific history Mm. in which the the word itself of democracy was arguably discredited in the 1990s uh, and became synonymous, not as it is in the West with the empowerment of people, but synonymous in a particularly Russian context with instability. And so Putin's essential trade-off that he promises people, and he does promise people, right? There is this compact with the society, if hmm. you will. He has politics, right? He's not some totalitarian leader. So he does have politics, and his his promise to the people from the very beginning was essentially to trade off a certain amount of freedom for this stability yeah, and the yeah. promise of stability, but in a very statist context, right? So e- even in the in Russia, the the word, the state, the gasodarsva, right, as you know, John, is almost a separate category from the people itself. It, it the, the worship that we products of Western-style democracy have for this notion that government represents the will of the people and the consent of the governed is just wholly absent from Russian history in a way that Putin has skillfully played off of. And so, I just—I think it's very important to note uh, that when it comes to the tactics of taking and consolidating power. There's an extraordinary convergence between how Putin and these others have operated, Mm -hmm. Erdogan in particular, to a certain extent, Viktor Orban in Hungary. But the politics of Russia are in fact quite different.
3: That seems convincing to me. I think the core of this and something that we don't talk enough about sometimes in journalism, and certainly don't talk enough about actually in academic political science, is what are these dictators' stories of legitimacy? Yes. What story do they tell their societies and often themselves about why they are legitimate rulers? And, and can what we, see, kind we stop of- on
1: the word legitimate and le-
3: legitimacy? What you mean by that? So so here's what I mean, right? When you go back to a lot of the dictatorships in the second half of the 20th century, when you think of the modal coup in Latin America, for example, Mm -hmm. it is people who say, you know what? All of this democracy stuff is chaotic. It's not really working. Our economy is in shambles. So here's a bunch of military uh, figures, generals or colonels, who are going to come in and say, hey, we're going to get rid of democracy for a little while, but we have a deal for you. You give up some of your freedom. You give up some of the things you can do in a democracy, like criticize the government, but in return, we're going to give you order, stability, economic growth. Right? It's a very straightforward deal. And what I argue in my article is that that's hard to live up to, but it's possible to live up to. Mm-hmm. There's no inherent incoherence in that story. If those military dictatorships or other kinds of dictatorships manage to live up to their basic promise, if they manage to deliver order and economic people tend to be relatively happy
1: with him. Do you have an example that comes to mind of somebody who succeeded?
3: Uh, Well, and I want to emphasize how how horrid his rule was in in all of the metrics that I care about, like human rights. Somebody like Pinochet arguably did relatively well at economic growth, for example, right? And that was the sort of basis of his Mm -hmm. legitimacy within that society, right? Mm -hmm. And I agree that I think in Russia, uh, coming out of a very chaotic 1990s, Uh, where some uh, uh, oligarchs managed to enrich themselves tremendously at the price of ordinary Russians, there was a deep delegitimization of democracy. And so to some extent, I absolutely agree, Putin's story of legitimacy is coherent. Um, He's saying... I will be the strongman, but I give you order and I give you some economic growth. It's not clear to me he's entirely living up to that. And (laughs) it seems to me that Russians are starting to demand some of those other values. But it's a more coherent story of legitimacy than what you get. I would argue also in Turkey, if that's at Erdogan, certainly in Hungary, certainly in Venezuela, where the promise from the beginning was, we're going to give you more democracy. But what they're actually doing is to
1: take democracy away from us. So, Susan, you mentioned that that, uh, Putin has politics. Talk about what that means.
2: Well, I, this this goes to Yasha's point in terms of uh, the legitimacy of Putin's regime from the beginning has been on this perceived compact with the Russian people, this idea that democracy uh, has been discredited, but in effect, you trade away uh, certain rights and freedoms in order to regain stability and the promise of Russian progress forward, and had
1: which, which is which is. I mean, I, I witnessed this even under Yeltsin. People were suspicious. Older people were suspicious of democracy, and they actually were quite comfortable with making that trade off. I would rather. I don't really care what the n- journalists can print in the newspaper if I have a steady paycheck and there's not going to be crime on the street. That that that's actually a rational choice for a lot of people.
2: Well, that's right. You could also uh, make it even more simple and say that Vladimir Putin and his early success was a product of, uh, you know, the uh, spike in oil prices, uh, just as the decline of the Soviet Union was the product of the massive decline in oil prices in the 1980s. -hmm. Russia is a resource-extracting state. Vladimir Putin was uh, bolstered by a rising tide of energy-driven economic affluence in the early 2000s, in exactly the period when I was there. You should have seen the transformation of Moscow from a a fairly, you know, edgy, grimy post-Soviet capital city to, uh, you know, a glittering world capital, uh, you know, with more new restaurant openings every year than any other place in Europe. And so, you know, this was uh, boosted and floated, the Putin government, by the economic cushion that Rising oil prices provided. Now, 20 years into this, you know, the economy uh, is sputtering. Putin never used that enormous oil bonanza to restructure and modernize the economy. It's no longer sufficient to float his uh, sort of grand and unequal and uh, corrupt insider kind of economy. And so, again, the question is what was the trade off that Vladimir Putin was making with uh, his? Russian people and do they still agree to it? And of course, it created this new vibrant middle class in Moscow and Saint Petersburg. Putin has been very disillusioned and the the second phase of his leadership of Russia, his post twenty twelve Presidency, He's been very embittered at the idea that this modern middle class that he believes he created Mm -hmm. has turned on him. Uh And there have been these enormous protests that have erupted periodically, including we're seeing most recently in in exactly the period actually after I wrote that article for Foreign Affairs, before it came out. You saw extraordinary protests in the street, 50,000 people in Moscow. That's something very unusual. And again, I think it has to do with how important it is, this question of the economy. Me as part of all of these authoritarian leaders? Are they delivering, mm-hmm. essentially, on that deal with these people?
3: So perhaps there's two different sets of questions about legitimacy, mm-hmm. right? On the one hand, you have those populist dictatorships, whereas I'm saying, the basic promise is more democracy, and that's a, a, a promise that inherently dictators can't keep. And so I think those countries exactly. are... Because of the contradiction of a dictator and democracy. Exactly. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think those countries are particularly vulnerable to this downward spiral of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, are regimes that offer the citizens or the subjects deals which they can, in principle, keep. But there are two sets of dangers to those regimes. The first is when they fail to live up to that, when they say you're going to have order and economic growth, but actually the regime turns out to be chaotic and the economy craters. That's obviously one problem mm-hmm. of instability. And we know from political science that even countries that have a relatively robust record of economic growth for many years um, experience real crises in the years in which they have a recession. Um, and then the other question of course is, people might stop wanting to go along with a the deal. They might say, yes, you know what, in 2000, after the chaotic 90s, when uh, actually the social structure of Russian society was very different, people were happy to give up liberty in order to have a little bit of economic stability in some order. But now that the country has grown more affluent, that a lot more people are educated, that there's a bigger public sphere, even though it is being crushed in many ways by Putin, um, there's a lot of people who are saying, I don't want the deal. I want my liberties. And that's another source of well, instability that we see it playing out in Russia.
1: I, I, I want to ask, does that matter to the autocrats' potential future? You you say in your piece that when they lose this legitimacy, when the deal breaks apart that they made implicitly or explicitly with the public and the public loses faith in the promises that was made, that the autocrat can then turn to oppression as the other means of control. and. Again, reflecting back to my career, I spent a lot of time in the 1980s in uh, the Arab countries, which at that time were Mm -hmm. rock-solid dictatorships. Um, Egypt, Iraq, Syria. Those leaders had no legitimacy at that point with their people, but they had total control. Uh, Okay, you may point out the proof that that they don't have control is that some of them aren't there anymore, and they're dead, and they're gone, and they're arrested. But for decades, they were able to stay in control simply through oppression. Mm-hmm. So my question is, does legitimacy really matter? Does it? Do they need to have it uh, in order to stay in power?
3: Yeah, well, I think legitimacy does matter tremendously. Now, again, it matters particularly in those societies where we've never seen a test of the popular will coming up against state power, Mm -hmm. right? So in a lot of the countries that are being led in the direction of dictatorship that actually had been reasonably robust democracies, think of a place like Poland where I think we're in the middle of that development right now, there's a genuine question about whether uh, the people would win if they went up against state power. There's a genuine question about whether the army would be willing to shoot on its its own citizens. Mm -hmm. And so in those places, I think legitimacy uh, matters tremendously. Mm. Now, in many other countries in which state power has been tested against the popular will and has repeatedly won, um, I think we can predict with a little bit uh, more confidence uh, that dictators may be able to oppress their own people. But even there, it is hard to operate a society without any legitimacy at all. You have to crush more and more freedoms. You have to uh, interfere in the economy more and more.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and that has very bad consequences for a regime, and it can sometimes alienate some of the allies of a dictator. Um, so Putin got tremendous things out of being somewhat legitimate in the 2000s. And Russia is turning, it seems to me from a distance, and I'd love to hear Susan's view on this, into a much darker place and to, into a less successful place mm. because yeah. Putin has to ratchet up his legitimacy.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. I'm thinking back again to the 80s when then leader Mikhail Gorbachev essentially blinked. He essentially flinched at a time when I think in Putin's view, he should have been a very tough guy and been more oppressive and he chose not to be oppressive in the long run. And the result was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, something that Putin sincerely deeply regrets. Do you think that that makes it more likely that if he had to, he would put troops on the street in his own country?
2: (laughs) Ah, Yes, he already has done so. Uh, uh, And I think that Putin has made it clear from the beginning that regime survival essentially is his, far more than legitimacy, uh, survival is his primary goal in office. And it has shaped many of his decisions. And this has often been, I think, the point of Uh, disagreement where, you know, the the people I know who I respect who've followed Russia most closely over the years have often tended to give that as the explanation for for many of Putin's sometimes otherwise inexplicable actions, whereas the conventional view here in Washington, I think, has often been wrong by failing to understand how much Putin has been motivated by essentially internal uh, domestic considerations. To stay in power uh, is his goal as much as anything else. Uh, And I think He is an interesting case, in fact, of someone who's not really an ideologue, so unless you say that his ideology is the state and the perpetuation of it. Now, the question of the uh, gradual delegitimizing of his government over time is a very interesting one, both because it's harder and harder for him to deliver on uh, economic growth, and partially that is because of the increasing isolation that his policies, international isolation that his policies have inspired, and yet those were very much in order to maintain a domestic political popularity and, uh, you know, organizing Russian society around an external enemy uh, is a time-honored practice of czars, general secretaries and presidents now uh, in the case of Putin. And that is what he has done in particular over the last few years with the takeover of the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine and the ongoing war that he's been sponsoring through proxies in eastern Ukraine. This is very much an effort to organize and reorganize Russian society around an external aggressor. And yet, of course, it's created this uh, international isolation, these economic sanctions on Russia that have only made his actual ability to govern the country more and more difficult.
1: But he's nowhere near Stalin in terms of being Stalinist, in terms of the oppression he's under, which he's putting his own
2: people. Right. Well, and, and he's that, a modern that, is that, is that, dictator. Would, and... Is
1: that would that be a crazy outcome? Is that something that was would never happen?
2: He's a modern dictator, and one thing that's been interesting to watch is their ability to calibrate. The kinds of repression needed and to show in a kind of shocking way to me, at least, how little repression is required in Uh, order to take control mm -hmm. of a society. And in that sense, that's why I called him the template in a way for these modern authoritarians. Putin showed them that you don't need to be Stalin Mm -hmm. to destroy Democratic institutions. And in the United States today, we are seeing, uh, again, we have much stronger institutions. We have uh, a radically different, thank goodness, history, a, a different people as a result of that history. But, you know, again, you are seeing the brittleness of institutions and especially Did you say brittleness, brittleness. Mm-hmm. yes exactly and in a society like Russia i think putin has shown other leaders around the world who aspire to take power that it it can be easier and involve a lot less you know shooting of people and show trials than they might have mm-hmm. imagined horribly and so uh, i think that's one way in yeah. which he has been affecting other countries
3: yeah, the key the key concept, conceptual difference here i think is between Dictatorship and totalitarianism. Yes. Right. So in a totalitarian regime, like the Stalinist regime certainly was, um, you are trying to politicize and influence and dominate every aspect of society. So if you have a choral society or a chess club, they need to be communist or Stalinist choral societies and chess clubs. And they need to begin their meetings by singing the international or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Right. In a dictatorship, you don't need that. You give people a deal where you say, you do whatever you want. You make whatever music you want. You do whatever you want in your social life. You have your chess club. You have your Choral Society. You sing whichever song you prefer. It can be the number one in the U.S. Pop charts. Absolutely fine. Just don't organize against me, right? So it's just one negative prohibition. Don't do anything that actively undermines my power. And that's why early on in these dictatorships, so many people can say, My life is fine. I don't care too much about politics. Nothing's really changed. But, and here is where legitimacy comes in, once the bank of legitimacy is depleted enough that there's protests in the streets, and once the regime has to respond in order to keep power by starting to shoot people, by starting to beat them up, by starting to lock them up, a lot more people suddenly say, oh, hang on a second, there's actually important liberties mm-hmm. that are being taken away from you. Suddenly, I'm a school teacher, and I have to teach propaganda about how wonderful regime is rather than just being let, let alone to teach my normal lessons. Mm-hmm. That rankles me a little bit. So you get more and more people who are reacting against that. And when more and more people react against that, you need even more oppression in order to beat them down. So I think that's a very important do you, and difference. Do you think that's a losing cycle for the dictator? Um, I think there is a real danger that it becomes a vicious cycle. Now, there's ways that they can throw up legitimacy in other ways, right? You can get out right. of crises, the economy can grow again, you can invade a foreign country and gain some legitimacy that way. But I do think it creates these acute dangers and risks, uh, particularly to populist regimes, but also to rulers like Vladimir Putin. Yeah,
2: I think that's an important point about the inherent weakness uh, in a system like this. I think, you know, Putin has faced, contrary to our you know, recent view of him here since the 2016 election as this sort of great and all-powerful leader, he has faced inherent weaknesses in this system uh, from the beginning, including mass protests that have frequently erupted. This is not the first time, right? It's almost more like a chronic uh, uh, illness of the the regime that uh, will flare up at at different moments in time and have done so with great regularity that underscores that this inherent uh, fragility of a a government that's not really based on a solid foundation. But I wanted to just make the point about the repression because I wouldn't want to understate it either. You you, you know, we tend to be very zero sum in some ways, uh, you know, like either you're a totalitarian Stalinist regime or it's not the Soviet Union. And for years, when I was first in Russia, when Putin was consolidating power, in fact, that was one of, I think, the dangerous and kind of failures in thinking was to be like, well, it's not the Soviet Union. Uh, it's not a rerun of the Cold War, as if therefore everything is OK. In fact, there's a long long trail of uh, bodies and arrests and casualties of the Putin crackdown over time. In fact, uh, my husband and I wrote a book when we came back here to the United States after watching Putin consolidate power called Kremlin Rising. In 2005, it appeared. When we wrote a sort of a new afterword chapter just a couple years later, uh, so many of the people that we talked to and who helped us in this book were dead or exiled out of the country. Uh, I cannot overstate that enough. It's not, you know, we're not talking about 1937 and the gulag, uh, but there is a very real trail of bodies and casualties and people who are literally forced out of Russia as a result of Putin consolidating power. So I think that is an important point to make. Just because he's not Stalin doesn't mean he's not a repressive dictator.
1: Yasha, the vicious cycle you you mentioned, it's a vicious cycle for the dictators, which is a potentially good thing for democracy yes, yeah. and, and you actually say in in your piece that the native optimism we were talking about from the 1990s that everything was going to become democracy democratic and that the forces of democracy were unstoppable has given way to premature pessimism that in fact the, the negative scenarios we're talking about are not necessarily um, the inevitable outcomes so do you see some of these things turning around?
3: Well you know I've I'm wary of over-interpolating from a few trends. I do think that we currently see the Venezuelan regime in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. We see the regime in Turkey in deep trouble um, with the uh, amazing victory of the opposition in municipal elections earlier this year, including the very hotly contested election in Istanbul, which Recep Erdogan had rerun because he didn't like the outcome the first time and then lost with a much bigger uh, landslide the second time, which mm-hmm. is precisely this kind of cycle in action. Um, and, and as Susan is saying, there's some green shoots in uh, Russia For they have been there before and tram- been trampled upon. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it would be tempting to say this is already happening. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little cautious about that. But the basic point is this. We used to think that democracy... Was so obviously legitimate, had so much obvious popularity that nothing could ever stop it, that we could be absolutely confident in its persistence. I think we've learned that that's not necessarily the case. I think people are are deeply motivated by the basic values that liberal democracy allows you to have individual freedom and collective self determination. But people can start taking those for granted. They can start thinking, well, this is just natural, any system has that, let's vote for these people over there who are promising to shake some things up. Mm -hmm. What do we have to lose? Mm -hmm. And it turns out we have a lot to lose. Now, once we've lost it, once we go into a system that is increasingly dictatorial, as you're seeing in Turkey and Hungary and starting in Poland, I think people start to remember those values. They start to say, hang on a second. Actually, I'm now feeling in my everyday life what it is like to be oppressed. And at that point, I think they want to have them back. And that's why I think uh, the new mistake we're making is to assume that these autocratic regimes are going to be very stable. They and won't they be. They might very or stable. might not. Is what you're saying. Some of them will survive through mm. brute force, just as the Eastern European communist regimes survived decades after they had lost most of their legitimacy. But some of them may collapse sooner than uh-huh. we think. And
1: I hope that that's going to happen. Out of everything you're saying, Yasha and Susan, what is what is your thinking on the question of could it happen here?
2: Here in, here,
1: here in the United States of America.
2: Look, the last few years have made it very clear that uh, even things that we thought unthinkable uh, could, in fact, happen here. Uh, and I think the important point to me is, is something that Yasha just touched upon, which is uh, the incredible fragility of institutions we perceive to be absolutely rock-solid and stable. I think... What I've learned and and watched over the last few years is is a realization that, you know, every generation has to renew uh, its own participation in a democracy for it actually to exist. And the withering of uh, essentially a a broad-based view that... uh, Individual Americans felt themselves to be stakeholders in what perhaps, you know, people here in Washington who were more engaged day in and day out because of their work uh, in these institutions, we understood what NATO was doing, but they didn't. You know, we might have thought at least that we understood what it meant to have a liberal international order led by the United States and the many benefits that would accrue from the United States being the world's premier currency, from it being uh, the leader and first among equals in international institutions. But it seems clear that our citizens, both right and left, by the way, don't necessarily think so. People didn't see themselves to be stakeholders anymore in this system. And I think that's been a frightening revelation for me of the last few years?
3: Look, I would just say this. If there was a, a populist or autocratic Olympics, if we <laughs> had, you know, Putin and Erdogan and Orban and Trump competing in uh, their ability to stay on message, in their ability to avoid needless <laughs> scandals, in their ability to subtly start undermining the rules of the system, Donald Trump would not make a medal rank. So in some ways, the test that we've seen to our political system over the last three years has been a pretty light one. Mm -hmm. And yet, our system has been undermined in some very deep ways. Rhetorically, but increasingly in concrete ways as well. I think it's at this point quite clear, for example, that the Department of Justice and the FBI are being deeply politicized, that people who Donald Trump perceives as his Uh, enemies within the bureaucracy are being prosecuted and punished in ways that are utterly unusual because they are seen as enemies of a president. That is an attack on the rule of law, which does look familiar uh, when you look at the first stages of how these things work in other countries. So um, I don't think that American democracy is about to collapse uh, uh, in the first term of a Trump presidency. I don't even think it would collapse in the second term of a Trump presidency if he wins re-election in 2020, which remains quite possible. But if a smarter version of Trumpism continues to be a major presence in our politics and continues to win some national elections over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, yes, I think it could happen here.
2: You know, when I came back from Russia, if you had asked me in 2005, uh, would an American president ever call uh, journalists the enemies of the people? you know of course i would have been flabbergasted and for a very specific historical reason the enemies of the people as john knows well was the term vragnaroda that was used in the soviet union during stalin's tenure to condemn millions of people to the gulag and to death. And this is not an idle phrase deployed by the president of the United States. He has you, been told... Do you think he knows that? History? Of course he does. I'm sorry, but whether he did the first time he used it or not, he's been told over and over again uh, exactly why this is such a offensive and even terrifying historical term to use. So uh, I can't say what the origins are of Trump's uh, particular decision to use that term, but I certainly can say several years into him doing so that uh, he Somebody and those who advise mm-hmm. him are well aware mm-hmm. of the historical context and use it despite uh, and because perhaps of that. And, uh, you know, if people think that's that's merely rhetoric, uh, that's exactly how uh, freedoms get lost before people are aware that they're trading them away.
1: Well, hearing all this, I I want to thank you both. And I want to to thank you, Yasha, for saying that the pessimism is still premature. (laughs) That's what counts as
2: optimism today.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much, Susan Glasser and Yasha Monk. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
1: This was a special episode of Intelligence Squared US. We recorded in a studio in Washington, D.C. And you can see our full schedule of upcoming events or dive into our library of now more than 160 debates by visiting us online at iq2us.org. That's iq2, the number two, us.org. Intelligence Squared US is generously funded by listeners like you. And by the Rosencrantz Foundation, Leah Matthau is our chief content officer. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile